1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's a beautiful fall day here in Metro Atlanta. I hope those of you around the state, I have not looked at the state weather maps, but I hope those of you in Columbus and Savannah and Bainbridge and Brunswick, I hope you're all having the kind of gorgeous fall weather we are up here in um, Metro Atlanta but we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about all the political news that uh, we can take on today, and we're going to do that with my Wednesday partner from the Atlanta Journal Constitution, Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the AJC. I often say Bluestein is the hardest working man in show business. He is out there 24 hours 7 days a week, and yet he still has time for his kids and his wife, which I find to be a remarkable balance. How you doing, Bluestein?
2: I'm <laughs> um, great. We've got a softball game tonight for my daughter, so she's excited about playing second base.
1: Oh, okay. Softball game. What's the name of her team?
2: Uh, the Dragons. The Fire
1: Dragons oh. or something like that. <laughs> we just roar right, a well, lot. Good luck. Good luck tonight. Uh, we're also joined by Professor Andre Gillespie, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. How are you, Andra?
0: I'm doing okay. How are you?
1: Great, great. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Let's get right to it. Um, Greg, let me start with this map, this first draft of a congressional map that we've now seen. Um, A map which does a couple of things that may or may not be surprising. I'll look to you and Andra to give me your take. we knew that the uh, Republicans who control the process were going to want to see if they could do something about one of the two Democrats in North Metro, Carolyn Bordeaux in the 7th, Lucy McBath in the 6th. And at least this first map suggests they've decided that Lucy McBath should be the target and that the 7th district will remain largely Democratic. It, it, w- why did they make this decision? And am I right that that's what the map suggests?
2: Yeah, you're right about what, what the map suggests. And, and this has been, and remember, this is a starting point. There's maybe some changes. Some of them will be significant. Some of them won't. But the big debate among Republicans is whether, basically, whether to go after both Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux and try to redraw both those districts or to go after one and, quote-unquote, sacrifice the other and let the other ones remain Democratic. And in the end, uh, on the Senate side at least, they they they, they decided that, even if there was a chance to make both of those competitive, that those lines wouldn't hold the rest of the decade, right? There, there was maybe a slim chance it would have been it would have been tough, but there was maybe a slim chance to draw both those districts republican leading for the next election cycle. But that would make both vulnerable, and their in their decision, you know, in their analysis that would make both vulnerable to to, to Democratic flip down the down uh, later in the decade. And to me, it's not surprising they went went after Lucy McBath, not because of her personality. I was told by multiple uh, Senate members who were involved in the drafting that that the the personalities didn't have anything to do with it. Um, The political uh, incumbents didn't have anything to do with it because if you look at it from from afar, Lucy McBath is the more well-known candidate. She'd be harder to beat. It was more of Gwinnett is changing so fast, Seventh District, which now spans parts of Gwinnett and Forsyth County, has to shrink considerably. It has to lose about ninety-four thousand people, and so the, the Republicans, have, at least in the Senate side, have basically conceded that Gwinnett is not is not going to be competitive for them for a long while.
1: Andrew, weigh in on this.
0: Um, you know, in addition to that, I think it's also the way that Gwinnett County is becoming more diverse makes it probably more likely that it could withstand a packing charge or allegation against them. So it's not just one group that's come in that's made Gwinnett County more diverse, Uh, it's multiple groups. So when you actually start to look at the numbers, no one racial or ethnic group is going to be a majority or supermajority in this Mm -hmm. district. So it it does, you know, in fact, make it uh, much more challenging to start talking about packing minorities into a district in the conventional way that we think about it. I would not be surprised if lawyers who make challenges. Um, on these types of claims, we'll start to think not just in terms of whether or not, like, their district is 60 or 80 percent African American, but whether or not a district is 60 to 80 percent people of color. Um, you know, part of the reality mm-hmm. is of the diversity of Gwinnett County is that it has a large Asian American population, and Asian Americans are trending more Democratic than they used to. Certainly, in the 90s, when they were about half and half Democratic Republican, but their voting rates in the last. A couple of election cycles, 2020, 2016, actually showed them surpassing uh, Latinos in terms of their uh, uh, Democratic Mm -hmm. voting rates. And so, uh, you know, I I think there was a concession that if you have a district that has a lot of black people and a lot of Asian people um, and a lot of Latino people, that that is actually going to end up sort of being a Democratic district. And there really isn't anything that you can do about it.
1: Uh, Greg, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but there does seem to be a little bit of mischief making a play over in the 7th by by making it, by putting it Gwinnett at the real center of the district, making it mostly Gwinnett, making it a much more a uh, reliably democratic district. It may encourage a more progressive candidate in the Democratic Party to want to take on uh, Carolyn uh, Bordeaux. Plus, they've moved her house out of the district. Right. she's
2: not in this district. Of course, she can still run, even if she's not in the district. David sure. Scott hasn't lived in this district for a while. But um, yeah, that's exactly right. Carolyn Bordeaux is the most centrist member um, of the of the of the Georgia Democratic delegation for sure. And this opens the door for a progressive primary challenge. Some people are already floating the name of Nabila Islam, who who was one of the runner-ups in, in last year's Democratic primary. But she's not the only one drawn out of the district. Andrew Clyde, up in Nor- a Republican mm-hmm. up in northeast Georgia, is drawn out of the district. Um, Lucy McBath might be – I mean, the lines were kind of blurry from that map, but she might be right on the edge of the district. And Barry Loudermilk. Also might be on the edge of the district. Yeah. So there's all sorts of Republican burial out of Republican yeah. yeah. So we might have
1: four hey, congressional hey. members drawn out. Greg, yesterday we saw reporting that suggested that Sanford Bishop down in the second district, that his district looked like it would remain fairly safe for him. But today we're seeing reports that in fact that map, that Senate map, makes it a far wider district. And therefore, it could be really, if Andre was talking about challenges to mapping, that could be a real problem for Republicans if, in fact, they try to turn that district into a much larger white uh, uh, district
2: exactly and this is where i am expecting to see some significant changes um because yeah this district goes from majority minority to majority white it looks like right again the, the line's are a little bit fuzzy but it looks like it goes there and uh that would that would open the i mean i've already talked to attorneys uh, from both parties who say that that is essentially ripe for a legal challenge that is the, that is the like lowest hanging fruit for, for, for party, partisan lawyers who wanna want to challenge these maps. So I don't, I, you know, the Republicans are well aware of this too. This might've just been something to uh, get folks talking and get people kind of riled up and just floated out there. Um, but I, I expect to see that changed uh, before the final maps are out.
1: We'll see. Andrew Sanford Bishop has held onto that seat for over the course of three decades uh, and, and it's been safe for him until maybe now.
0: Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that I would offer as, uh, you know, just a word of caution in terms of context, and I would have to see the numbers, so I can't quite tell based on the mm-hmm. map uh, how much wider the district becomes. But, you know, there were instances where this has happened. Uh, it happened to Cynthia McKinney when she represented the fourth district, where those districts were redrawn so that they became less African-American in order for them to comply with uh, a Shaw versus Reno in the mid-1990s. And so if the districts still has a large portion of African-American voters in the district. So somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, 45%, give or take Um, a couple of percentage points. I expect that African-American voters will still be very, very influential in the district. So, yeah, it makes it more challenging, but it doesn't make it insurmountable. And for those people who saw their district being redrawn in the mid-90s, for instance, so not just Cynthia McKinney, but Bobby Scott in Virginia, um, Sheila Jackson-Lee, Eddie Bernice Johnson in the Houston mm-hmm. area, right? You know, one of the takeaways that you've learned is that you don't have to have a district that is majority black in order to give black candidates sort of uh, a competitive advantage within the district.
1: All right. Um, we're going to look. This is a first map. We know there are going to be changes. We know draw, lines are going to you know, move back and forth over a period of, of weeks when the session finally gets underway in November what, second or third, whatever that first date is, uh, Greg. But let me uh, very quickly, because we're going to go to a pledge break in a moment. But uh, meanwhile, there are any number of local election officials that are calling on the legislature to move the date of the primary from late May to late June, I think from the 24th to June 28th, saying these districts are gonna be drawn so late, you're gonna play havoc with our abilities to organize how we put together an election properly. Is, is there any likelihood that's gonna happen? Yeah, we saw how fraught those
2: negotiations were last year because of the pandemic to delay it, and there was a lot of, kind of foot dragging from, from officials who did not want to move it. Um, I, after I saw your note yesterday, I checked in with some legislative leaders who said, there's not much appetite, they're not saying it couldn't happen, but there's there's a lot of other things on the pecking order that they want to they want to deal with during the legislative session so there's not this overwhelming desire to do that but again you know things could change and that could be something that comes up in March or April and suddenly it's a big debate
1: um, Andre I want to get your take on this but I, but we're still in our the final days now of our fall pledge drive. You don't need to hear any more from me about this. If you support GPB Radio and if you've been a supporter of Political Rewind, we are incredibly grateful to you. If not, we really do need your support because it's your dollars that pay for the programs that we present. Here's how you can do it. (laughs) Greg Bluestein and Professor Andre Gillespie uh, with us on the show today. We do have one more pledge break, but that's it. One more pledge break in the show and still a lot of time to talk. Um, Andre, you, I think, wanted to weigh in on this question about whether the primary should be moved. I don't know what the implications of that might be if you move it from March 24th, if that's what it is, to June 28th. What are your thoughts on this?
0: Well, I mean, I think on, on some level, people who are interested in running for office Already have a sense of that and are kind of quietly putting their teams and their infrastructure together. Um, I think the bigger issue is is that what, what these new lines do in terms of creating opportunities for people. Um, you know, if they find that they've been drawn into a different type of district that looks either favorable or disfavorable, they may make different types of decisions. And just having more time to deliberate might be okay. What I would say is is that if uh, people are given more time. That might incentivize some new voices to be able to kind of put an organization together. Mm. Um, and so, and as Greg was talking about before, like would Carolyn Bordeaux get a more progressive? Um, uh, progressive challenger, you know, with an extra month of deliberation, somebody might be able to do that. And I should also note that in the, in the second district, like, you know, I cited cases from the 90s and I have to sort of keep in mind, like there are fewer white Democrats, you know, um, and so that would be a challenge for Congressman Bishop, in addition to the fact that things are much more polarized now. Um, but, you know, if there's anybody who was in a position to be able to to meet that um, and to be resilient against that, it would probably be Congressman Bishop. What could be being set up is in the event that he retires in this decade, uh, that district could look very different in terms of who is representing it, sort of like who would succeed him uh, based on how these new lines are being drawn.
1: All right. All right, thank you. Of course, Greg, you, you're you're skeptical. You say the people you're talking to don't really see a need to do it, but we we will to make that move. But but we'll follow it. And I, I think what Andre says is interesting in terms of whether it would open opportunities for people uh, to consider a run. Let's move on, Greg. You um, you were down in Perry at uh, Donald Trump's rally, and uh, you filed a number of stories on it, and I guess. You know, the big question coming out of that uh, for me is, well, there are a couple. I mean, what exactly is the implication of Donald Trump, even tongue-in-cheek, or even just, you know, offhandedly suggesting that maybe Republicans would be better off voting for Stacey Abrams than Brian Kemp? Has there been pushback at all from Republicans? Uh, Are they irritated about this? Or do they just say, well, there he goes, that's Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, uh, privately,
2: they are irritated by it. They're calling it a disaster, a a new low, all those things, you know, that we've heard privately Republicans say publicly, very few of them are saying that publicly. um, Only some former Republican officials are saying that publicly. When I asked all three of Trump's trio of, of endorsements, statewide candidates he endorsed, um, whether or not they agreed with what the president, former president, said about, about um Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, none of them would endorse Brian Kemp. Um, so publicly we're hearing a lot of different than what we're hearing privately. That's that's kind of the trend. I'll say this, people ask me a lot. I've gotten a lot of questions about how that rally went. And I've been to three dozen Trump rallies. I've been to maybe four dozen. I've been to a ton of them. This was one of the smallest crowds I've been to. This is all also, and it's hard to tell. It's hard to gauge this, but this was also one of the more far right crowds. It seemed usually you see families, you see a cross section of Republican voters. You see, you know, you just see a lot of different types of voices. Some, you know, some people who are, uh, you know, just curious to see what the what the president or, or, or now the former president is saying. In this case, this was um, these were people who, as I was walking in, were were hurling expletives at Joe Biden. Um, it was just not a family crowd. <laughs> this was this was um, this is just something else. It was a very different environment um, and one that was much more hostile. And of course, as we talked about over the over the last few months, one that was much more focused on the last election in November than the next election. This is the thing that dogged Republicans throughout the runoffs, right—the the focus on November, not in January. And we're seeing the same thing play out again: a focus on November. There was certainly, you know attacks from Joe Biden from the former president but and and the others, but there's so much calls for audits, calls for, you know, false claims of lies about elections. All that was just the dominant theme of this entire uh, event.
1: So uh, a lot of what happened there is um, uh, we saw uh, Trump with his beginnings, maybe he'll have a bigger ticket, but the beginnings of his ticket of people he's supporting So, Andra, for me, it raises the question, uh, this question. If you are not a Trump-endorsed Republican running in the primary, if you're Butch Miller uh, running for lieutenant governor instead of uh, Burt Jones, if you're Gary Black instead of Herschel Walker, although I get Herschel Walker as his own weight around him regardless, can you win a primary in Georgia without Donald Trump's endorsement? Do you imagine it's possible?
0: Well, it's happened in other parts of the country before, so I wouldn't say unequivocally no, Um, but it's still something that lots of people covet. And one of the reasons why you covet it is that you get a certain sort of guaranteed percentage of the electoral vote. Um, And so if you're going to get a certain percentage of of, of constituents just with Donald Trump's uh, endorsement, you'd rather have that than not have it. But that being said, that doesn't mean that uh, that Donald Trump's endorsement is actually a guarantee that somebody actually wins wins the nomination. And we may start to see more and more examples of that. So I think the, the way Republicans across the country, and even here in Georgia too have looked at this as sort of you rather have his endorsement because most of the time his endorsers win. My hypothesis here is that Donald Trump, was good at picking obvious people. So he's kind of Captain Obvious, and he's not particularly strategic about them. And then, like, you go forward, there are going to be people who break through and who are going to win despite what he says. And then there's the larger issue of if he's continually picking folks who are extremists who aren't in particularly safe jurisdictions, these people are going to have a much, much harder time winning elections. And so It may take some time for people to realize that there is nothing magical about a Donald Trump endorsement. Um, And it's going to take a long time for people who do realize this to feel comfortable saying the emperor has no clothes, which is what should have been said on Saturday night when he endorsed Stacey Abrams. Right. And there still (laughs) needs to be this reluctance on the part of Republicans to call out the obvious and to go, we should not be following this guy um, because he's, you know, five years in a good politician on some um, on some metrics, but he's also a terrible politician and tactician on other <laughs> dimensions as well. And and, and and a lot of these people have been doing it a lot longer, and they should walk in the confidence of knowing what the conventional wisdoms are and knowing that they actually know what they're talking about, and he doesn't.
1: Um, Greg, what do you think about this? Yeah, regarding what the professor
2: said about Trump picking kind of the obvious winners, I mean, that's what happened in eighteen when he... It, Brian Kemp was up. He was up six, seven, eight points in all the internal and public pollings. against Casey Cagle. He picked him. It turned into a route, but Brian Kemp was already going to win in all odds. Um, Now, I'd say, you know, regarding your question about whether how much it matters, um, clearly, you know, uh, Brad Raffensperger was going to be on the outs no matter what. But now Jody Heiss is the front runner in that race. Um, You know, the lieutenant governor race is going to be very close. That's going to be one that could could kind of defy expectations because Butch Miller has a very deep base of support. Burt Jones is running as the underdog, even though he has uh, the the former president's support. And remember, you know Butch Miller's base is Hall County, where uh, the, one of the biggest troves of Republican votes is 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 out there. And Nathan Deal can tell you that, that, that how important Hall County is because he won it, and it propelled his narrow victory over Karen Handel in tw- the 2010 Republican runoff. But I'm really interested, too, in the fact that the former president is not endorsing the governor's race because, you know, he doesn't want to, quote unquote, waste his endorsement on a candidate who's who's not going to win. He's not going to do it a long shot. He was egging David Perdue to run in the race. We haven't heard any significant movement on that front, but he is not willing to go, you know, endorse someone even as much as he hates Brian Kemp He made it very clear again. Uh, All all last week, not just at the rally, but in interviews before the rally where he he predicted Brian Kemp would lose in the general. Um, So it wasn't just some one-off tongue-in-cheek thing. He said it repeatedly, and he said it repeatedly over the last five months, seven months. Um, But he's still not willing to just go go all in for Vernon Jones or Candace Taylor or any other candidate who who might run against Kemp.
1: Yeah. Um, He also uh, took shots at uh, Chris Carr. Uh, at, at the rally, which he's done before, but to bring it to the stage in Georgia adds a little bit of um, uh, weight, whatever you want to call it, to that. He says, Chris Carr, unfortunately, has decided not to get involved in the accusations of uh, fraud. But, but it, it, so, you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch how all of uh, this plays out. Meanwhile, Greg, um, we're hearing from the Fulton County DA's office um, in some reporting. That they really believe that not not so much from her office as from people who are analyzing the evidence that she has to deal with. That they believe there is a case to be made against Donald Trump, a criminal case for in, trying to interfere with the election here.
2: I can tell you, I check in with um, uh, folks close to the investigation regularly, and they say that um, they have they have already contacted congressional investigators who are involved in in uh, investigating the January 6th insurrection attempts. Uh, they are expecting some significant news in the next few months, not imminently. We're not expecting it this week or next week or anything like that. but they're expecting some, some real movement and they've already interviewed key players in the Secretary of State's office. So there is this is moving forward. Uh, doesn't mean that there will be you know there'll be uh, prosecutions um, imminently, but it does mean that they are definitely working towards that.
1: All right, um, I'll tell you what, we're going to take our final pledge break of the show, but when we come back, Andre Gillespie and Greg Bluestein, I want to ask you about this other major theme that, Greg, you already alluded to briefly, which is we've got all of these uh, Trump-supported Republicans, Georgia Republicans, talking about a so-called audit. It's come back yet again. Let's talk about what that does in terms of undermining people's confidence in our elections but right now final plunge break of the show today help us if you can again if you have thank you we'll be back in a moment welcome back to uh, political rewind um, Andre Gillespie uh, before we move on from the Trump rally and all that came out of it one quick uh, additional note we ought to talk about Um, suddenly uh, everybody on that stage was uh, once again demanding what they're calling an audit. Jim Galloway on our show Monday said he doesn't think audit's a particularly correct word. We've already had all these recounts. And so a listener, a Democrat who works for Democratic politics, uh, sent me a note saying, why don't we call it a fraud it? (laughs) Which, (laughs) if nothing else, was amusing. (laughs) Um, So here's my question, Andra. Morning Consult uh, did a poll in which they ask uh, whether or not people think a democracy is in danger. And What was fascinating to me about that is well over a majority of Republicans, among others, said, yeah, we think democracy in da- is in danger, but the Republicans said they think it's in danger because Democrats stole the last election. Where is our democracy? I know this is a huge question that we need to do an entire show about, But are we ever going to have confidence in elections in this country again? And what does that mean for all of us?
0: So I I pray that we get back to feeling confident in elections one day. In the foreseeable future, it's probably not going to be the case. Um, And we're just in a moment right now where some people are not taking responsibility for uh, the recklessness of their actions and, and their words and how other people are listening to this. So, you know, I think it is telling that Saturday's rally sort of came after the release of the Arizona report, um, which Mm. showed that, uh, you know, Joe Biden actually got more votes in Maricopa County than he um, had officially been uh, been granted when they had done the official count of the election. And instead of that actually calming the waters a little bit instead of that sort of bringing people to a place where they would finally be willing to accept the election results. Now they're just running every place else looking for fraud and they're not looking to change. They understand Joe Biden is going to be president until January 20th, you know, uh, 2025 at least. But what they're going to do is go to places where they think something nefarious happened, even if it's not going to change electoral sort of results. If it's not going to change election results, like, you know, but if you find out that something crazy uh, happened in Harris County, Texas, for instance, right, then that is the proof that Democrats were trying to rig something. And I think uh, and, and then they will use that as their rallying cry. And so I think one, this shows that this is not about actually finding truth. This is not about being persuaded by evidence. This is going on a fishing expedition. Um, and we don't know in the future whether or not people will actually be able to, uh, will be willing to be honest or whether or not they would just blanketly make some stuff up for real um, and claim that something happened. And then there's just the larger issues of, like, these audits, the one in Arizona now has caused certain machines to not be usable, right, because they're now vulnerable to hacking, Um this, yeah, I mean, they're just all of these other things that are being used to indulge people who kind of need somebody, an adult, to tell them, you can't do this anymore. It's over. You need to get over it. And then the Republican Party is going to have to just really come to grips with this idea of a strategy of just not accepting election results and being sore losers is not the way to go. And what I hope is that when Democrats are in a losing position, that they don't take this route of just contesting all election results because you're mad that you lost a particular election.
1: You know, Greg, uh, even in the aftermath of the Arizona recount results, which, as Andres uh, uh, pointed out, showed that Biden got more votes in Maricopa County than initially, uh, you have Republican Congressman Paul Gosar from Arizona demanding a rematch between (laughs) Biden and Trump before the end of this year because, he says, the uh, audit or whatever it was, the recount proved fraud. It's crazy. But, but Greg, um, in the long run, To hear this talk in Georgia doesn't really do Republicans a whole lot of good, does it? It certainly didn't help them in the January runoff, in in which Democrats won largely, because Republicans didn't show up.
2: Look, there's a lesson we learned from the Arizona audit, from everything that's happened since November. There's no appeasing this crowd. Uh, You know, there's no—unless Trump is quote-unquote reinstated, right? There's no appeasing this crowd. There's nothing you can do. you know, it, once there was audits of in, in Georgia of, <laughs> of of county absentee ballots. There was recounts. There was tallies. There was uh, you know ju- judicial hearings. There was all, you, know, you name it. They did it short of a special session to quote you know to investigate uh, the election, which would have you know we know that was aimed at reversing the election outcome. Um, you know, there, there's no appeasing. Uh, you know, to stop the steel crowd. And so every time Republicans try to t- inch towards that direction, uh, they, they get in trouble. And, you know, it's really instructive because we saw in Texas um, last week, we saw former president write a message saying Texas should audit its election results, even though, you know, Republicans won that state by solid margins. Um, and not long after that, um, we, we heard Governor Kemp call the special session without that audit call. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. easy to draw a line between those two because earlier that day, the the, uh, the former president was asked on a radio show um, whether he wanted Georgia to call call an audit, and, and he was upset at the governor for not doing that. So there's all sorts of pressure internally that I'm sure the governor's office is facing over that audit. And then as we heard at the rally, I mean, if there was a dominant theme beyond you know the lies about the, uh, the rampant election fund, it was audit, audit. We heard over and over yeah. again. Speakers yeah. were getting interrupted with those chance.
1: Okay. Um well let's move on to another subject, um, which is also one that's fraught with tension. Um we we spent some time talking on the show yesterday about the showdown in on the hill in Washington right now over everything from the continuing resolution. Uh, To uh, in the house the infrastructure bill versus the social policy measure. I so I want to pick up on uh, uh, update one aspect of this conversation Um, Politico reported this morning, and of course everybody else is too, but I'm going to read you the lead from the Politico story. The Senate is expected to vote as early as Wednesday on a revamped spending bill that would forestall a government shutdown at the end of the week after Democrats ditched action on the debt limit amid staunch Republican resistance. So Republicans were threatening to filibuster uh, any attempt by Democrats to raise the debt limit, which of course pays for past spending, not future spending. Um, And Democrats kind of threw up their hands on that and said, look, we just don't want to shut the government down, so they're going to uh, vote for a continuing resolution to keep the government open. But the debt ceiling, by the middle of October, we're facing a real crisis. All right, that's that. But what I'd like to look at for now, Andre, is the fight that's coming to a head this week on the House side, which is moderates and perhaps Speaker Pelosi are hoping they can get this $1 trillion infrastructure bill already passed in the Senate, get it up for a vote, but progressives are continuing to insist that it's got to be coupled with the $3.5 trillion social policy package of President Biden because apparently the progressives do not trust that Pelosi will take them up separately. So here's my question. It's a, it's a huge subject, of course, but I have not heard much from Georgia members of the House, Democrats, about this. Nikima Williams has said she supports the package, but would she, in fact, hold up an infrastructure bill over this? Sanford Bishop and others. What are the dangers on both sides for Georgia members, Democrats particularly, but, but Republicans as well, who will reject both?
0: Um, You know, I looking at the Georgia Democratic delegation, I don't expect any of the Georgia Democrats to be at the forefront of obstructing getting something through. Um, This is a pragmatic bunch. Relatively speaking, they're usually not on the extreme. So Carolyn Bordeaux, as far as being a Democrat, is concerned, you know, is a moderate. Um, But as Mm -hmm. as you are, is more of a pragmatist than sort of being an arch conservative. She's not cut from the same cloth that, say, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are in the Senate. So I think many people will look at, uh, at, this, at this as something is, is better than nothing. And they may be in a position where they're going to actually try to broker something that will allow uh, all of the, the Democrats to be able to rally around something while saying that the more ambitious part of the infrastructure agenda at least got some type of hearing. Um, you know, about this. So I'm not surprised at all that you haven't seen Georgia members of the delegation be at the forefront of this. Uh, you know, there isn't a Georgia Democrat who's, you know, closely identified with the squad. And so as a result of it, I don't think we should be surprised that we're not really seeing our folks at the, you know, at the center of this controversy.
1: But we should say, Greg, that Carolyn Bordeaux um, has made it clear that she, I mean, she considers herself, I think it's fair to say a, a conservative on, the, on economic issues, on spending issues, or certainly a moderate. And she's spoken out saying she's skeptical about the size of that social policy package. So she is one person who makes it clear she's got questions about it. Yes.
2: Yeah. M- remember, she joined that group of uh, I think it was nine centrists a few weeks ago and then uh, pushing back on the on the three point five trillion dollar package. But then they relented. And. Um, it's a narrow, I know we use this phrase over too much, but it's such a narrow tightrope act that uh, that Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats are trying to navigate right now. They have about three votes to spare in the House, zero votes to spare in the Senate to get this through. You, you, you talked about the progressive push uh, centrist pushback um, uh, you know, c- concerned about the 3.5 trillion price tax progressives are saying $3.5 trillion is exactly where it should be. The Democrats have this once-in-a-generation opportunity to push through because everyone recognizes that the next midterm is going to be really tough, and there's a good chance that Republicans take at least one of the chambers back to the House. So uh, you've got these, these, these competing interests, and Nancy Pelosi is right there in the middle. People always say don't bet against Nancy Pelosi, um, but she's got her work cut out for her right now to try to – thread this needle and get both these measures passed. The, the trillion dollar infrastructure package has already passed the Senate. Um, but both of those, uh, the, the trillion dollar infrastructure pass, package and the budget bill still needs to pass the house with very little breathing room.
1: So meanwhile, Georgia, which voted for Joe Biden in 2020 is watching this unfold. Uh, Greg and then Andra, I'd like to get both of you on this. If, uh, if this, Biden agenda collapses this week because Democrats can't come together, progressives and moderates, to uh, come to some deal. And infrastructure can't get done. Social policy package can't get done. Uh, it Whatever happens, 2022 and 2024, um, I know they're both s- some distance off, but Greg and then Andra, there are risks for Democrats, I think, in Georgia, over this, you may disagree. Uh, each of you take a shot at this.
2: Yeah, there are risks. I mean, Republicans can't wait to to paint this proposal as too costly. Uh, the three point five trillion dollar reconciliation package, in particular, is too costly, too wasteful, too broad. Uh, you name it right to anything, uh, with infrastructure packages is going to be a little harder for them to attack, especially because it got so many Republican votes in the Senate Mm. and it might pick up some Republican votes in the house, but the, the, the budget, the social policy package is going to be front and center. Uh, I think in
0: 2022 and
1: in 2024
0: campaigns, Andre? Well, we already see various aspects of it or things that are adjacent to it being used. So I don't, you know, if you think about what the Republican attack line is going to be, it's always going to be that they're tax and spend and that they're wasting money on, on, on little things that don't matter. If this whole thing implodes, that's certainly not good for President Biden and the Democrats who are already kind of in a defensive position. But the the question that I will have going forward is what this actually does for the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Like, they start to look like Mm. extremists who obstruct stuff. And that might actually not portend very well for them going forward, not necessarily in those particular races, but in terms of the type of platform and voice that they may have going forward.
1: Um, I also think it's going to be interesting if Republicans, I mean, Mitch McConnell has been about as uh, they faced in terms of the way he's pre- dealt with the debt ceiling, saying, uh, yes, we'll raise the debt ceiling because we always do. But it'll all be done by Democrats. We're not going to help. It's going to be interesting very, very quickly, Greg, to see whether Democrats can actually message on that and get voters to buy into the fact that Republicans are being obstructionists.
2: Especially when both parties have voted together to raise the debt ceiling so many times. Uh, and now Republicans are saying, "Hey, you, you it's your it's your majority. Go do it.
1: Greg Bluestein, Andre Gillespie, thank you so much for a terrific conversation. We are out of time for today's show. Uh, back with a brand new show, of course, again tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care, stay healthy, wear your mask when you have to indoors. Uh, get your friends to get a vaccine and go get your flu shot. And listen to these messages about how you can support us in the final days of our pledge drive. See you all tomorrow. Thanks again, Andra and uh, Greg.